this week on the Backtable Podcast. We're doing this as a team. I think for physicians, there's a huge advantage of having a PE response team. You know, some of these treatment decisions can have, you know, some serious complications, you know, bleeding complications. And you're trying to make these decisions for a patient. If you have to make them alone, it's pretty scary. But when you have a team of experts sitting there saying, yes, we all agree that this is the best thing for the patient, there's less reluctance. So the patient doesn't wait. And I think that's a huge benefit for patients and physicians. Um, you really have a shared responsibility when making this decision. So it, it makes it a lot easier to get things done. Welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things endovascular or otherwise minimally invasive. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or backtable.com. Subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, or reach out to us on Twitter or email to let us know how we can make this a more valuable resource for the endovascular community. Inari Medical Incorporated is a medical device company focused on developing products to treat and transform the lives of patients suffering from venous diseases. Inari has developed two minimally invasive, novel, catheter-based mechanical thrombectomy devices that are designed to remove large clots from large vessels and eliminate the need for thrombolytic drugs. The company purpose-built its products for the specific characteristics of the venous system and the treatment of the two distinct manifestations of venous thromboembolism, or VTE, deep vein thrombosis and pulmonary embolism. The clot retriever system is 510K cleared by FDA and CE Mark, approved for the treatment of deep vein thrombosis. The flow retriever system is 510K cleared by FDA and CE Mark approved for the treatment of pulmonary embolism and clot in transit in the right atrium. This is Michael Barraza returning as your host, recording in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm joined by Aaron Fritz in Dallas. Hey, Aaron. Hey, Michael. Thanks for having me. <laughs> this is a fun opportunity to do this one together. Uh, we're going to be talking about establishing and, and working with the pulmonary embolism response team, or are we calling them PERTs? Mm-hmm. I guess so. It's an honor to welcome our guest to guide us through this, Dr. Karin Gonsalves, co-director of interventional radiology at Jefferson University in Philadelphia. Dr. Gonsalves, uh, thank you for sharing your weekend and expertise with us. How are things in the city of brotherly love? Everything's great. And I have to thank you both for spending your time with me today, because I just want to thank everyone at Backtable for this opportunity. Because when I told my junior faculty that I was doing a Backtable podcast today, it was the first time they ever used my name and the word cool in the same sentence. So I, <laughs> I appreciate it <laughs> wholeheartedly for having me here today. Dr. Gonzalez, uh, you know, you and Aaron and I talked before, and, and we've all spent some time in Philly. And you know, I was uh, just down the street at Penn for my fellowship. And, and when I was applying, I was, I was wildly naive about some of the really great programs out there, uh, including Jefferson. And a lot of our listeners are medical students. I want to give them the opportunity to learn about what I now know to be a fantastic program in a, in a really great city to live. Can you tell us a bit about your IR department and training program? Yeah, sure. But first of all, I think you guys know that I did my training at Jefferson, both my diagnostic residency and my IR fellowship. Um, and I was also program director for IR um, for about 11 years, and I wow. really enjoyed educating future IR docs, and it's such a huge part of what we do on a daily basis. Um, our program has a total of 44 diagnostic and IR residents in our wow. program, which includes two independent and then 10 integrated IR residents. We also have uh, the ESIR pathway for diagnostic residents interested in pursuing a career in interventional radiology. 
Um, and our department consists of uh, four state-of-the-art angio suites, three biopsy suites, an interventional CT scanner at our main campus in Center City, Philadelphia. Um, and we also staff a community hospital down in South Philly, which is equipped with one angiography suite and an interventional CT scanner as well. We have eight, soon to be nine, IR attendings. We have 17 IR techs, over 20 IR nurses, six PIC nurses, four medical assistants, two nurse navigators, uh, wow. 4.5 advanced practice providers. So we're a pretty big group. Um, we perform an average of 45 to 50 cases per day between the two Whoa. campuses. And we have our own admitting inpatient service, three multidisciplinary clinics, an IR clinic, and a vein center as well. So um, we pretty much have it all at Jefferson. That's cool. You guys have a vein center too? Mm-hmm. We have a vein center as well. That's great. It, and it seems like you guys are doing really a, a bit of everything. Yes, we are. We definitely do the full gamut of IR procedures and interventions, um, including some of the more novel procedures, such as like endo-AVF creations and prostate artery embolizations and geniculate artery embolizations. And we also have a very robust interventional oncology program. Uh, we are world-renowned for the treatment of patients with metastatic uterine melanoma, and I can go on and yeah. on and on about that. <laughs> but yeah, we I was going to talk uh, about that a little bit too. <laughs> well, I mean, focusing on you for a minute, I mean, you've got, you know, based on your research portfolio, you know, a really robust and varied practice. Among other things, you've published extensively on various transarterial therapies for primary and metastatic liver cancer. And, you know, as you mentioned, uh, uveal melanoma, you're, you know, one of the leading authorities on uh, local regional therapies for liver mets from uveal melanoma. So, then the question, of course, is, is why PE? Like, why pulmonary embolus? So I've been doing this for a very long time. So I've been in attending for 22 years, which is, or 23 years. It's actually pretty hard to believe. Um, but I've been performing pulmonary arteriography for decades. Um, in fact, I performed pulmonary arteriography to di diagnose PE prior to the advent of CT pulmonary arteriography. So I'm really uh, old school. Um, and I also performed a lot of catheter-directed inter interventions for patients with PE prior to establishing our PERT program. And um, these patients, though, however, were those who had massive PE. So those patients who were critically ill, they weren't candidates for systemic thrombolysis or surgery. So in other words, they were patients who, if we didn't do something, they weren't going to survive. So we had a lot of great, amazing saves, and I've always been interested in PE and having a PE response team um, at Jefferson. So when I was given the opportunity to be part of the PERP program at Jefferson, I was very interested in learning more about the pathophysiology of PE, new treatment options, and learning new skills. And as division director, I always feel the need to keep up with the times and make sure that I start new programs and bring in new procedures, not only to stimulate our staff, but also to train our residents. I'm with you there. I mean, it, and it, it really seems like PE treatment has really, at least in the endovascular community, has really blown up in the last five years or so. And, and I think a lot of that, personally, I think a lot of that is the result of technological advancement, namely the development of, of large bore thrombectomy catheters. And we'll get into that later. But you know, in terms of the PERT teams, you guys were pretty early in doing that, right? I mean, I think you said 2016? Mm-hmm. 2016, yeah. So I enjoyed hearing the story about how you you guys started it, how it was initiated. Would you mind sharing that with our audience? Sure. 
So although I am the co-founder of the program at Jefferson, I need to give most of the credit to my colleague and very, very dear friend, Gino Murley. He's an incredible person, an outstanding vascular medicine physician who also co-founded the PERT Consortium back in 2015. So in 2016, Dr. Morelli approached me and asked if I wanted to be part of the PE response team at Jefferson. So needless to say, I knew about the PERT Consortium and the work they were doing. So I was thrilled by the idea of creating a PERT program at Jefferson. And so for those who are listening who don't know Gina Morelli, he is one of the nicest people you will ever meet. So when we had the first meeting, he invited everyone. There were dozens of people in the room and everybody had a lot to say. And I was a little disappointed that the meeting wasn't more productive. So afterwards, Dr. Morley said, you know, what do you think of the meeting? And I politely explained that I thought future <laughs> meetings would be far more productive if they were limited to a small group of people, uh, such as a representative from IR, vascular medicine, pulmonary critical care, cardiothoracic surgery, and cardiology. So Gino paused and he you know, he's like I said, he's very thoughtful and considerate. And he said, how am I going to uninvite all of those people? <laughs> and I simply just told him, I said, look, just wait a few months. What's going to happen is that most of these people that aren't really interested in participating in the program will forget all about the meeting. And in the meantime, we can strategically choose physicians who would be vital to the program and most importantly, dedicated to creating and maintaining a strong PE response team. And within six months, the PERT program at Jefferson was up and running, and we had a first PERT alert in 2017. Wow. Did you experience any challenges in creating the team and, and how it functioned in its first few years? So I have to say, as far as the physicians go, they were fabulous. No problems on that end. Everybody you know, was fully involved, really wanted to make this a strong program. But I think the major hurdle I had, and I didn't think I was going to encounter this, was getting approval to purchase devices for catheter-directed interventions. As you know, some of the newer devices, as you already mentioned, the suction thrombectomy devices are quite expensive, and most hospitals yeah. are not excited about purchasing expensive equipment. So I needed to convince members of the Value Analysis Committee at Jefferson that these devices were essential to creating and sustaining a strong PE response team. However, I knew I couldn't ask for every device on the market, so I had right. to think about which would be best for our team and what were we missing as part of our team. So I did seek expert opinion from my friends in interventional radiology, and I really limited my request to just a couple of devices. And since I had a lot of experience with catheter-directed thrombolysis, yeah. just using multi-site hole infusion catheters, I really stuck to the suction thrombectomy devices when I asked yeah. uh, the hospital to purchase these. Um, however, I have to tell you, it took me 11 months to get some of these devices on our shelves. Wow. So that was probably the most difficult challenge I faced, which was unexpected when starting a PE response team at Jefferson. Did you have help from your, say, interventional cardiology colleagues and pulmonary care colleagues to help try and get those devices on the shelf? Or what, did you feel like you were kind of all alone trying to, trying to fight for those? So fortunately, the person that headed the value analysis committee was one of the cardiologists. So right I, used to corner, I used to corner him everywhere in the hospital <laughs> and just beg him and say, please, how am I going to do this, you know, make this amazing team if I don't have 
the equipment I need. And finally, he just, he gave in. He wasn't interested in doing any of the interventions himself, but I think he felt so sorry for me. He finally gave in. (laughs) Did you have any challenges getting, you know, team members of the hospital at large or any particular department to buy into this? Or, you know, really is the fact that you're having them on the team, does it eliminate that to some degree? I think it eliminated it, you know, to some degree, but I also think having Gino Morley, who helped establish the PERC consortium and also just, you know, everybody knows who he is. He's been around for decades at Jefferson. So he demanded, you know, he had, he commanded some great respect amongst the faculty. So I think that really made our job easier. And, um, and yeah, I'm really happy I was able to partner with him. So I'm curious how your PERT team has evolved since its inception. You know, is it the same specialties involved now that were at the beginning? So it is the same five subspecialties. So it's interventional radiology, pulmonary critical care, um, vascular medicine, cardiothoracic surgery, and then cardiology. But I will say over the course of the last couple of years, we have kind of limited to pulmonary critical care, vascular medicine, and interventional radiology, and let our colleagues in cardiothoracic surgery and cardiology sleep a little bit more. (laughs) We pretty much would initially take the three groups would take, three physicians would take the initial call. And then if we needed uh, cardiothoracic surgery for something like ECMO, um, we would give them a call. If we need cardiology uh, because we were um, having any difficulties getting echo, we'd give them a call. But um, we pretty much have focused on those three groups and then pull in the other subspecialties as needed. Well, you guys have, you know, obviously a very robust treatment program there as well. And so, you know, my question is, is, you know, since you started doing these with a PERT team, you know, how's it worked? Has it been worth it? Oh, absolutely. Um, I truly believe our PERT program is making a difference in the care of PE patients. Um, for instance, when I care for a PE patient, I really try to put myself in their shoes. I would feel absolutely terrible if I had trouble breathing or my mobility was limited. Um, I, I'm sure I would be terrified, and I'm sure they are too. So if I can help these PE patients feel better more quickly, I really consider this an honor. It has been one of the most rewarding experiences I've had as a physician as, and as an IR doc. So comparing your experience treating these before and after, you know, what got better? Basically, what I'm asking is, you know, what would you say are the major benefits to treating patients under this multidisciplinary system? Well, I think one is the, the greatest thing is that we're doing this as a team. And we do this, we assemble everybody quickly together so the patients are getting cared for more quickly. And the thought process behind our our decision to treat patients is based on the literature, it's based on experience. So I think patients are definitely getting better care with the advent of the PE response team at Jefferson. I think for physicians, there's a huge advantage of having a PE response team. You know, some of these treatment decisions can have, you know, some serious complications, you know, bleeding complications. And you're trying to make these decisions for a patient. If you have to make them alone, it's pretty scary. But when you have a team of experts sitting there saying, yes, we all agree that this is the best thing for the patient, there's less reluctance. So the patient doesn't wait. And I think that's a huge benefit for patients and physicians. Um, You really have a shared responsibility when making this decision. So it it makes it a lot easier to get things done. 
Okay. So, you know, on paper, this sounds very convincing. It seems like this is probably the way to do it. I'm still trying to figure out, you know, how it works in action. So when somebody comes into the hospital with, and there's, you know, reasonable suspicion that the patient has a PE, how's the team activated? So we have a phone number, first of all, that is 955-CLOT. Okay. <laughs> <And laughs> we couldn't I'm use part. <laughs> We're not allowed to use parts. So we, we've used <laughs> the last four digits as CLOT. Um, so anybody in uh, the hospital can activate the PERT team. And then typically the first phone call goes to the pulmonary critical care fellow on call. They collect all the necessary patient information to determine the severity of the PE. And then if the PE falls into either either an intermediate or high-risk category, uh, the pulmonary fellow activates the remainder of the multidisciplinary team. Um, and if it's during the day, the PERT physicians may either meet in IR to review the images, or we can evaluate the patient as a group at the bedside, or we can just discuss the patient by phone. And then after hours, it's typically a phone conversation or a a web-based virtual electronic meeting. Um, And then once the team makes a treatment decision, the appropriate steps are taken to initiate the plan. Um, So it works out really well. We'll be back to the episode in a minute, but first, a word from our sponsor. Inari Medical, a medical device company focused on developing products to treat and transform the lives of patients suffering from venous diseases, is enrolling patients in Peerless. Peerless is an RCT comparing the clinical outcomes of patients with intermediate high-risk pulmonary embolism, PE, treated with the Flowtriever system versus CDT. Peerless is a prospective multi-center trial that will include up to 700 patients and 60 centers in the United States and Europe. The study consists of a primary randomization cohort of 550 patients. And for patients who cannot be randomized due to an absolute contraindication of thrombolytics, a secondary non-randomized cohort of up to 150 patients. Dr. Karin Gonzalez is the global co-principal investigator for the trial. Peerless is the first ever RCT to compare mechanical thrombectomy to CDT for the treatment of PE and aims to provide definitive data on interventional treatment options for these patients. And now, back to the episode. I know there's some you know, novel software applications out there that people are using, uh, using AI applications uh, or alg- algorithms rather. I think you know, viz.ai has uh, an algorithm for PE and, and AI doc. Are you, is Jefferson using any of those? So we are in the process of acquiring the ADOC program for uh, PE. Um, and then, as you know, this facilitates rapid interpretation of the CTPAs. And based on the findings, uh, for instance, if the patient has right heart strain, a cell phone alert is sent to the PERT physicians. And not only can we see the imaging findings on your cell phone, but the program will pull in relevant data from the patient electronic medical record. So we have not yet implemented it yet. We are getting approval to purchase it, um, but we are in the process of doing so. And we're very excited about that. I'm interested to hear how that pans out. We have uh, AI doc here, but I, I don't know if, you know, we just have like a beta version because ours, we don't have the, the alert for the right heart strain or the clinical details. I, I have it running on my computer and it'll tell me. It's actually been really pretty accurate in terms of the studies I've looked at, whether or not it has a PE. It's been really good. We also use something for stroke called Rapid. I, I do stroke interventions and, uh, and we actually use that for communication too. It'll identify and say, you know, if a patient has a large vessel occlusion. And, and that's actually how we will activate our team if we're going to do a thrombectomy. 
so my question for you is how do you guys communicate? I mean, I know you told me you, you'll sometimes do like a, a Zoom meeting or something like that, but what's the process like for deciding the, the treatment plan for a patient with, you know, you guys have already figured out the patient has a PE? Well, we do use the ESC guidelines for PE. So typically we will gather all the information, as you mentioned, you know, we look at the CT scan, we obtain laboratory values, an echo. Um, we are uh, proponents of getting echoes pretty much on almost every patient. And then we do divide them into whether they're low risk, intermediate risk, or high okay. risk. And then the intermediate risk, of course, is divided into high risk and intermediate risk as well. Um, excuse me, high risk and low risk as well. So once we have the patient in a specific category, it's always important to go look at the patient because sometimes you can have okay. a patient that, geez, their their labs look horrible, their echo looks horrible, but they're completely fine, which is very odd to me. <laughs> you know, and then you have patients that really look that like they are struggling to complete full sentences. They can't roll over bed without getting uh, short of breath or their heart rate going up to 130. Um, okay. So that really helps us determine who we're going to treat um, and how we're going to intervene. Okay. Yeah, it it's certainly complex, and I think that's echoed by the the algorithms you guys have. I, I'm assuming that there are plenty of these out there. I, I found some algorithms that showed the the plan. Actually, I think it was from MD Anderson. It's their algorithms for evaluating, stratifying, and 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 selecting treatment options. Do you guys use those, and are they pretty heavily involved in your plans? I mean, we have specific treatment algorithms, but I think okay. experience really kind of drives what you're going to end up doing anyway for the person. But, you know, I guess we're so used to it, we really don't find it too complicated anymore. And the one thing that we do for our clinicians, we do have a uh, website on our hospital intranet um, where the clinicians can click on a box and up comes the algorithm. But most importantly, it says, hey, please order an echo, order a BNP intraponin level, maybe get an ultrasound and you can alert the team pre or post, you know, getting that information for us. But that really has helped. So when we sit down and try to figure out how it's best to treat a patient, we, a lot of times we have all the information uh, at our fingertips. So it's pretty straightforward, I think. Okay. Is there anyone, I'm just curious, because, you know, Mike mentioned stroke and, you know, we talk about time to intervention in, in, in cardiology often, uh, as, you know, for stroke, cardiology trauma even. Is there anything like that in PE? Are people looking at, you know, time to, to intervention uh, when it comes to massive PE? Massive PE, I don't think anybody's looking at specific times for intervention, but yeah. we find that we're, we motivate, we, we motivate our teams and our uh, techs and uh, nurses to get in as quickly as possible for these particular patients. I mean, the last thing you want to do is, you know, have them end up on ECMO or, you know, have to be uh, doing CPR on them. But so we do, you know, activate our team very quickly for massive PE patients, no matter what time of day it is. It doesn't matter if it's in the middle of the night or in the middle of the afternoon. Um, As far as the intermediate risk patients, the intermediate high risk patients, sometimes with, you know, patients, like I mentioned, they might look pretty good. Um, and we might keep them on anticoagulation overnight, see how they do for uh, several hours. Um, and then what we'll do in that regard is check them out the next day. And if they're doing okay, we might, we'll walk them. 
We'll give them a walk okay. up and down the hall. Uh, we'll ask them to do maybe just light exertional activities in their bed if they can't mobilize and just see what happens to their hemodynamics. Uh, if their heart rate shoots up, that O2 requirements increases, the blood pressure drops, we really will activate the team uh, more quickly in that, re- in that uh, circumstance. Okay. In terms of uh, risk stratification and treatment selection, those are obviously complex topics, and we could spend an entire episode on that. And so I'm not going to go into all that in great detail, but I did notice uh, in reviewing some stuff that you had, you had contributed to a study in, I think it was in the Annals of, of uh, Thoracic Surgery, on uh, surgical treatment of PE. And so, you know, because of that, I have to ask you, you know, in which circumstances are you guys going straight to surgery for this? Now, pretty much never. <laughs> That's my guess. I'm just curious. Yeah, it, it really is never. Now, I will tell you that the only time that we would push surgery or, or a surgical intervention would be patients who have a clot in transit and a patent PFO with clot extending into the left atrium. That's when we are sending patients to the operating room, but pretty much, no, we're not, they're not going to the operating room anymore. They're pretty much going to suction thrombectomy because we can get rapid results um, with that technique. And I I think that there's been, you know, really across the board, a a shift in the endovascular treatment of PE because of these catheters. And I, I think the data is still catching up and we're starting to see a bit more supporting it, but can you tell us about your experiences with this device and really how your approach to treating PE has changed since their introduction? So the large bore thrombectomy devices, and particularly the flow retriever device, which is a aspiration catheter, comes in three sizes, 16 French, 20 French, and 22 French. And it just has a large bore side port and an aspiration s- syringe. It's really easy to use. It tracks incredibly well, despite being intimidated by the size initially. It really is easy. It's an easy tool to use. The suction thrombectomy device is very uh, reliable in the sense that it can aspirate acute thrombus, subacute thrombus, and even chronic thrombus. Um, I'm surprised what we are able to extract in a few aspirations. And most importantly, just how dramatically better a patient gets um, on the angiography table with these devices. So it really has changed the way we treat patients. The, it's really a big paradigm shift in uh, the way we manage these PE patients. So I'm very glad that you know they have been developed and become more uh, simple to use you know, for the treatment of uh, these patients with submassive or massive PE. Karin, has the device evolved itself since the first time you used it? Like, have you seen improvements over the last few years? Well, the first time I used it, they only had the 16 French and the 20 French device. So I've, of course, the 24 French is very useful and it does aspirate, like I said, a significant amount of thrombus. There was one concern when we were using it that we were going to have a significant amount of blood loss. And the flow retriever device now uh, comes with a flow saver device, which is a filtration system. It has a 40 micron filtration uh, device within it, and you can separate clot. Um, from blood, and then you could uh, re-inject the blood into the patient. So it really dramatically decreases the amount of blood loss. So it really pushes you to, you know, you could do a lot more thrombectomy, not worry too much about having to transfuse a patient. Um, So it's really changed uh, 
the way we do suction thrombectomy over the last few years because of that. Has it changed patient selection? Like, do you find that there are more candidates for intervention than there were before? I mean, not everybody is going to be able to get thrombolysis, for example. Right. Right. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it's it really has added another tool to our toolbox. Um, so I'm thrilled, again, that we're able to treat more patients. Obviously, you know, in a hospital, there's many patients that have either relative or absolute contraindications to thrombolysis. So to be able to offer them suction thrombectomy is wonderful. It really gives us an opportunity to treat more patients. Um, I think at this stage, you know, in 2022, we're probably treating about 30% of our patients uh, who uh, we have a PERT alert. So I think in the old days, it was, you know, like I said, it was just the massive PE patients that were crumping that we got to treat. So I think at this point, you know, it's really given us the opportunity to treat a lot more patients. Uh, Are you still doing thrombolysis anywhere? Yeah. Oh, definitely. We definitely do uh, uh, thrombolysis. We find that with the suction thrombectomy, we like Mm -hmm. to uh, focus on more central clot. So maybe main PA or proximal left and right PA or uh, segmental branches. But when we start seeing the clot, you know, in subsegmental branches more diffusely, yes, we typically will use catheter-directed thrombolysis for those patients. Okay. Do you ever use both if, if there's a large central and peripheral burden? Yes, we definitely will mix it up a little bit. <laughs> Anything to help a patient. Um, yeah, and I've also used thrombolysis on patients with absolute contraindications if they're not going in the right direction. I think yeah. anything to, if you could do anything to save somebody's life, that's what totally. should be done. So yeah, so we do do combinations uh, of therapy. And you know, sometimes we'll start with thrombolysis. And if we feel like we're not getting the results that we want or the patient's hemodynamics haven't changed to what we f- feel is acceptable, um, then we can go ahead and you know, pull out the suction thrombectomy devices. So I'm curious how some of these uh, more unusual cases work uh, in, in the PERT team. You, know, you posted a, a pretty cool case on Twitter, I think a week ago. It was a big lollipop thrombus mm-hmm. that, uh, that you got out. And Basically, how does that get to you, um, you know, within the PERT team? Yeah, so I think um, that was a big PE that we pulled out and got stuck at the (laughs) the tip of the catheter. That wasn't, that was a little exciting. Um, But I think there is a couple of things that we're incorporating in the PERT team that we haven't uh, seen before. And one is clot in transit Uh and also uh, vegetations on either the tricuspid valve or on pacer leads, you know, so cardiac leads. So we have used the suction thrombectomy devices in those uh, circumstances. um, And um, that has definitely been incorporated into our uh, PE response team. Karin, just for our trainees, how do you define clot in transit? Clot in transit can be mobile clot, Mm -hmm. whether it's in the IVC, SVC, right atrium, or right ventricle. Okay. And the important thing for the trainees who are listening is that clot in in transit has a very high mortality uh, associated with it. So these patients uh, need to be treated. Um, And the treatment, the optimal treatment, I should say, for clot in transit has has not been well defined in the literature yet. You'll see if you read case reports in the literature, it'll be systemic thrombolysis, surgery, just anticoagulation. And now that we're getting in these large bore suction thrombectomy devices, you know, the Androvac and the um, Flotriever, 
they're definitely being utilized to treat clot in transit. Um, and although we don't know the best treatment, I think that we're going to soon know. I think these suction thrombectomies are definitely going to be more important than and and safer than um, sending a patient to surgery. Okay. Um, my other question is, you know, obviously a lot of these patients have DVT. Do you ever see these patients who have, you know, massive clot burden in the leg and, and maybe impending phlegmasia at the same time that, you know, you're, you're dealing with the PE? Do you ever see these together and do you ever consider treating them at the same time or is this something you stage? Well, we haven't encountered too many patients who require treatment of both PE and DVT, but I know some folks, you know, in the IR world and in cardiology perform both procedures at the same time, but we do tend to stage patients to describe decreased procedural time. And obviously yeah. we would focus on the PE first. Right. Okay. Uh, and then after you're done with these, you know, who's basically quarterbacking the, the post-procedural management? Is, is this back to the, the pulmonary critical care team? So in the past, um, patients would follow up with either one of our vascular medicine physicians or one of our pulmonary critical care physicians. But currently we are in the final stages of establishing a multidisciplinary post-PE clinic. So this is very exciting. I have to admit that COVID really caused a significant delay in establishing yeah. our, um, our clinic, um, but we are very excited um, that we're going to be able to see these uh, patients at a group, uh, as a group. I think it's very important awesome. uh, that our IR docs see this as well. And then, you know, obviously we want to make sure that these patients don't have complications of uh, PE. So we need to follow them uh, closely and and go ahead and screen them for some of the um, the complications such as pulmonary hypertension or uh, CTEF or just post PE syndrome. Is that something that the IR residents get to participate in that clinic? They will. They will. They yeah. definitely currently our IR uh, residents participate in all of our multidisciplinary clinics and our IR clinic and our vein clinic. So we would love for them to rotate through and just see you know how these patients are managed after they have a uh, a PE. This whole system seems like it would be a, a really exceptional opportunity for for trainees because they're getting, you know, high level experience in in clinical managing these patients, but also doing this procedure that is not something that's done everywhere. Um, so I hope you guys are listening, medical students. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, I don't have much else. So you know, one thing I, you know, this is Aaron's idea. is a great question. You know, what advice would you give to you know, IRs or other endovascular specialists out there in either private practice or academics that are that are interested in forming a PE response team in order to improve their management of PE patients? So I would definitely recommend to those out there interested in creating a PERT program that you start small, limit the number of people initially involved in the planning process, and select the most qualified, <laughs> compassionate, and dedicated people to be part of your PERT team. It's not only important to make a treatment decision as a team, but it's also invaluable to have a support, the support of the team members, especially the pulmonary critical care docs, when you're doing the procedures, especially in those uh, critically ill patients. So if you have a strong team and a real dedicated team, they'll be with you in the middle of the night helping you manage the massive PE patients. So I think it's very important that the, the physicians are selected you know, very, very um, carefully. And then the other thing I would recommend uh, for maybe not the trainees or the junior faculty, but for the more senior faculty who are interested in creating a PERT program, and it's very important that every interventionalist performing these uh, therapies are appropriately trained 
and they are comfortable with the individual devices. I spent many weekends, evenings, and nights double scrubbing with junior faculty to make certain that they were comfortable performing PE interventions. And fortunately, I'm very lucky that our IR docs are all technically outstanding. Uh, so my job is very easy, but the emotional support was well-received and always welcomed uh, by these junior faculty. And I think that really makes us a successful program. Right on. Karen, why can't you use PERT in the phone number? Why does it have to be CLOT? I think it's actually... Trademarked by them or something? Trademarked by the PERT consortium. Wow. So you can't have pens that say PERT on it. You can't... Oh. Yeah. So, yeah. So they, I think they own it. <laughs> CLOT's cooler anyway. I like yeah. CLOT. I like yeah, it really it does. It really better. does tell you what it is, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, somebody's going to call a pert number looking for the shampoo line. So, uh, <laughs> well, that's all I got. Uh, I just want to thank both of you. I never get to say that. Both of you for joining me and, yeah. and thank our listeners for, for tuning into another one. And that's all I got. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Brian Hartley. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Zubi Syed. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson and Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang and newsletter by Lauren Fang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.